Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions and provides unbiased answers. Whereas large industrials, they tend to ebb and flow with corporate R&D, corporate uh, CapEx spending, etc. And GE is certainly along the lines of that. The chart is definitely in a downtrend, and it's uh, it's definitely not cheap enough yet. Invest Talk, over 43 million downloads and counting. Your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, July 21st, 2022 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I'm excited for this hour with you, answering your questions and giving you my straightforward and unbiased answers, giving you some perspective of over 20 plus years of investment experience and studying many, many, many cycles in the past. And I'll give you the data that I have in front of me as well to help distill and give some context to what's happening in today's market. Now, today's investing situation is different than the past several decades. We know we have higher inflation. We have geopolitical concerns. We have ESG, which we're going to get to uh, today a little bit. And all of this brings different challenges and different opportunities in the market. So my goal is to help you unpack all of them and help you take that next step in your journey towards your own version of financial freedom because everyone's a little bit different and you always need to understand that that's one thing that most people don't is they get a tip from their their neighbor their cousin their brother uh here on invest talk and they think that that's what they're going to apply to themselves but you always have to understand every opportunity in context your risk tolerance levels and your goals what might be good for one person might not be good for another Okay, so understand that as well. Now, I invite your phone calls and questions right now during our live stream program from 4 to 5 Pacific time. Or if you're listening after hours, you can leave a message. Either way, the number is 888-99-CHART. So let's get right to our first first listener question now. Hello, Steve and Justin. I have a large cash amount in my portfolio. All I own is the S&P 500 and a couple of cover calls like QILD and I want to invest in the tech giant, but I'm kind of stuck between Google, Microsoft, or Apple. If you could please nudge me in some direction or on some pro and cons or which one would you benefit from the most? Thank you. Well, the f- first thing I'll say is the best opportunities in the market right now are not in large caps and, and mega caps. These are me- all three of these that you mentioned are mega cap companies. So 
uh, I would urge you to expand your horizon of what you could potentially buy because there's far better purchases than some of these uh, these mega caps. It's one thing I'm doing portfolio reviews. I'm unpacking how much exposure uh, listeners have to the small and mid cap space where there's a lot more opportunity. Whereas most people are chasing headlines or chasing the companies that they know. And unfortunately, especially in this market, the gap between large cap and uh, small cap in valuation is at a record. Um, so I encourage you to look, look elsewhere. But if you're looking at just these three, there are different pros and cons for each, as there are with every company. For Google, near term, very reliant on ad spending. And if the economy continues to slow, which you know, we, we do expect it to, you're going to get lower ad spending. Let's look what happened with Snapchat after hours, down another 25%. Why? Because ad spending is slowing. Now, certainly their franchise is a lot weaker than Google's, but it applies to all companies that are reliant on ad and ad spending. And there was so much money flowing into money losing private equity com uh, companies that uh, or companies that private equity uh, companies were buying and they were fl flooding the, the, the ad market uh, with dollars and that inflated a lot of the uh, the advertising revenue from the, the Facebooks of the world, the Googles of the world, the Snaps of the world, etc. So Google, while very good franchises, I think that has the most near-term headwinds to the overall uh, market uh, or market conditions or economic conditions right now. Number two behind that would be Microsoft. Now they're a little bit stronger, stickier business because you're talking about cloud service software. We use it. We use their Microsoft 365 and uh, Microsoft OneDrive and all that, and and we like it. But as companies try to lower costs, they lay off people. Think of unemployment going up. What does that mean? They don't need as many seats. They don't need as many licenses to Microsoft products and that's going to be a headwind uh, there. And you can see that with earnings expectation for this year being downgraded. So uh, I would say Microsoft would be second on that list of three uh, because of, of those reasons. Apple, still number one. Uh, still reasonable valuation, a ton of cash, and earnings expectations for this year and next year are actually being upgraded as of late. So well diversified. I think their franchise overall, the iPhone, the iOS platform, just has the stickiest business over, overall. And so if I'm picking one of those three, I'm definitely going with Apple. Thanks for the call. 888-99 chart, 888-992-4278. Now my focus point today is based on this question. Will ESG underperformance be its undoing? So we're going to dig into a lot of these ESG funds and what are the, the pros and cons and how to look at them and where the future of the industry is going. Okay. I also want to touch on semiconductor chip stockpiles. They're growing. Remember the whole mantra of there's a chip undersupply, right? There's a chip shortage. Well, in a lot of areas within the chip market, that's no longer the case. In fact, there's too many chips. So we're going to look into the, some of those statistics. And then a bear market. How do you make sure a bear market doesn't blow up your retirement? And then lastly, lawmakers are looking at 
closing a deal on stable coins and regulating stable coins. And I think this is something we all need to watch as the crypto market evolves and you've seen the kind of blow ups in that market. And I think that's something uh, we'll discuss as well if we have time. But ultimately, I want to know what is your mind, what is on your mind. So give me a call, 888-99-CHART. Let's take a look at the market today. The S&P was about 39 points, about 1%, and really closed right at the highs of the day. Very bullish. I've talked about this, that uh, there is, it was overly negative positioning, and you start to get a small catalyst. Maybe that's the Fed not tightening quite as fast, and you, you get a rally. And oftentimes, because of flow dynamics in volatility adjusted funds and target dated funds, etc., you often get a, a chase higher. The, mar the, the, the investors who are underexposed to the market chase the market higher. Doesn't mean the dynamics of the economy aren't slowing, doesn't mean uh, earnings expectations aren't slowing, but just everything was kind of priced to, instead of priced to perfection, priced to peak negativity. And you're getting a relief rally on that. I still think 4,100 to 4,200 on the S&P is probably the target zone where uh, there's going to come into some, some a lot of resistance. But right now, we're right back at about 4,000 on the S&P. So another 25 to, to 5% to the upside would not surprise me in the short term as more and more funds start to add back positioning that have, they've taken off over the past six months. So that's where we're at in the close today. Very interesting move. 10-year was down decidedly about see, 12 and a half basis points. Very interesting that that pulled back uh, so dramatically. You had good earnings out of DR Horton that had a positive, uh, a positive move along with all the home builder stocks that, hey, the housing market certainly slowing, but not to a point where home builders are having a, a really tough time, at least not yet. Uh, and the market reacted positively to that. So that's where we're at in the market. But ultimately, I want to hear from you. This is the best talk and the weekend is coming up fast and one more trading day in the week. And I'm Justin Klein. And we have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this break. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Why do listener questions make InvestTalk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that InvestTalk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show and I've learned a whole lot. Hey guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now and I've learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99 chart. 
Now, my focus point is in regards to ESG investing. And for many years, the past probably three, four years, it's been a major talking point for Wall Street and trying to get investing dollars into new funds that are are supposed to make some sort of positive in impact, whether that's environmental, social, or governance. And they've been in demand, but mainly they've been in demand because large asset managers are advertising them and they're trying to do that in order to get higher fees because the average fee on an ESG fund is uh, often double, if not triple what you get in an index fund. Now, ESG investing gets promoted as a way for individuals to invest in invest their conscience, conscience and invest in their principles. But in reality, nothing can be farther from the truth. And this is pretty similar to what happened in the 90s. There was a move by Wall Street to limit investing in quote-unquote sin stocks. So think of casinos, think of tobacco companies, alcohol companies, etc. And initially there was a, a decent uptake. But what happened was returns failed to outperform the benchmark. And guess what? It died. It was just a fad. And this is another good example that there's really nothing new under the sun. It's just little bit different flavor of what you've seen in the past. New talking points, new titles, but underneath the surface, it's very similar to probably something that's been introduced uh, you know, years ago. For example, index funds. It's not new. There was what is called the Nifty 50. This was in the 1960s. It was just buy these 50 stocks and you're fine. That's all you knew. It was 50 blue chip companies back then. It was GM and Xerox and IBM, etc. And that was well and good until money started flowing out and then uh, the performance didn't do quite as well. And then everyone just rushed to the exits and that what brought the bear market of the early 70s, 73, 74. Okay. So it's not uncommon to see this happen today. It's just by the S&P index, right? And you also have a little bit of a flavor of this with the ARK ETFs and Everybody thought it felt good to own quote unquote disruptive companies until guess what? The performance faded and money still actually flowing in, but recently it started to flow out. Now, investors might be willing to pay those higher fees as long as they get higher returns. Natural, right? But ultimately, as ESG underperforms, because mainly it's just overweight tech companies, it's mainly what it is. And so when tech is, is out of favor, and energy is in favor, well, guess what? ESG underperforms. Now, out of 253 funds that switched their ES to an ESG focus in 2020 here in the US, 87% of them added words such as sustainable, ESG, green, climate, etc. But none of them, none of them actually changed their stock or bond holdings when they did that. So it was just a marketing gimmick. Now, the SEC is starting to crack down on this, misleading claims in regards to ESG. They're trying to create new rules that would specify disclosures that would need to be made by investment funds uh, that mention these type of things. And outflows are now rising as ESG continues to underperform. 
In fact, in the month of, uh, was it May? March, April? May. There we go. May, it was negative flows in ESG for the first time since early 2019, where that was only one little blip. Pretty much since early 2019, it's been continuous flow into ESG funds. Okay. Now, with inflation running rampant, this is not going to do what be be a good thing for ESG in general. Why? Because they're going to be underweight, quote unquote, dirty energy, and overweight things that need commodity inputs. Okay, which are server farms and electric cars and all the things that suddenly become more expensive when the raw materials get more expensive and energy costs go up. So, and another problem is. If you just because you invest in an ESG fund, they're going to go use that money to go buy the stock that's existing in the marketplace. It's not changing the dynamics of of what the company is doing. And RBC Wealth Management surveyed 900 U.S. clients. 49% said that performance and returns were a high priority uh, over ESG impact. That's up from 42% last year. It's kind of like risk. It's like, oh, I'm okay with being high risk until risk happens and then suddenly they get low risk. Now we're heading into a break, so give me a call at 888-99-CHART. Have you heard about Riskalyze? It's a brief question and answer form that you fill out online. Steve Peasley and Justin Klein will also get a copy of your responses. They can use the Riskalyze results to help you formulate a strategy that fits your investing risk tolerance. Learn more anytime and take the Riskalyze quiz at investtalk.com. Hey, Steve and Justin. I'm calling regarding Big Lots, B-I-G. I bought the stock when it was at $40, and now it's trading at about $22. I have a small position in it, and I'm thinking of adding to my position, but I just wanted to hear your opinion on should I just sit and hold with this uh, amount that I have right now? I have less than 3% in my overall portfolio. The earnings report that came out recently was not very good for the company, but it is at very low multiple PE ratio right now. So just wanted to hear your opinion on it. Should I add more to my portfolio now or kind of just hold it and let it uh, get back up to previous numbers? Thanks. I'll be listening to the show. Have a good one. Bye. All right, looking at Big Lots, they operate about 1,431 discount stores in 47 states and yields about 5.5%. And uh, earnings over the past few quarters have, have struggled, uh, losing money in two of those three quarters. Expect to lose $2.53 this year, but that's after making $7.35 la- uh, in 2021 uh, and $5.33 uh, in the previous year. So, Pre-pandemic, it was making about four, four fifty a share. So the big question is, will there be a reversion to the mean? Because if there is, then this should be very, very cheap, trading about five times normalized earnings. Now expect to make a dollar eighty-two next year, which is you know, which is solid, but we're still not back to that four dollar level. But what's interesting is analysts are starting to upgrade their earnings once again. So what we think happened is just kind of a kitchen sink type of a quarter, uh, and a lot of the. We've seen this a lot of the targets of the world, Walmart's of the world, just over inventory and big lots is, is no different. And as people were getting less stimulus checks, they certainly uh, were, were spending less in their stores. But it's a very good cash flow business, uh, typically. 
And so I think this is actually a good buying opportunity longer term. But, you know, when that turnaround happens, uh, I think it's actually pretty close. If you look at the technicals, they're starting to get uh, a bit better, uh, but certainly a higher risk name, you know, small cap, about $630 million market cap. But if you look at things like enterprise value to EBITDA trading at 3.4 times, 3.4 times, which is historically pretty low. And if you look at things like price to sales ratio, which is at 0.11, which is basically the lowest it's been uh, over the last, uh, actually since it's been public. So um, I do think it's uh, it's very cheap here because those margins will normalize and it will start to, and it's been buying back shares, which I like. We like that they're plowing money into not just the uh, the dividend, but buying back shares as well. They had in 2005, they had 112 million shares outstanding. Now they only have 29 million shares outstanding, and they've been consistently buying more or buying back more. 20, August 2020, they had 40 million shares outstanding. So they've bought back over a quarter of their shares just in the past year and a half or so. So uh, that just shows that their business has produced a lot of good cash flows, and I do think longer term, it's cheap here. Thanks for the call. Now let's pivot over to. What are we going to next? Let's go to Luke in Wisconsin, looking at SBSW, which is Sibane. Sib, Sib, I, I can never say the name of this company. Sibanye Stillwater, I believe so. I believe that's how you say it. It's out of South Africa. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Uh, yes, sir. I've owned it for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, I sold some around 19, and I've been writing covered calls and rolling those over um, mm-hmm. about monthly. And I'm just thinking about adding to my long position here and um, I'm wondering what you think. Thank you. Yeah, I do think this is a good buy down here. They have a lot of gold production, but they also have uh, gold refineries. It's the largest in Africa. And they I know they have some production of things like zinc and other uh, raw materials that are that are uh, desperately needed for for. for electric cars. So, you know, the biggest issue for this would be the locale that it's in, in South Africa. And, uh, you know, it's more of a volatile region of the world. And uh, I, I do think this is a good time uh, to add to it. So thanks for the call, Luke. And I like that strategy of the cover calls. Thanks for the call. 8899 chart, 8892 Let's touch on semiconductors. And Investors are starting to sell off their semiconductor shares. Part of that has to do with just tech and growth stocks being out of favor and a lot of those names being uh, selling at very, very high multiples. Think NVIDIA, for example. But what investors are also seeing is that the chip shortage of last year is now turning into an oversupply, overcapacity glut. And many analysts predict that the chip demand, uh, at least last year, would outstrip supply for an extended period of time. But that's starting to shift. Uh, Why? Because this is a very cyclical industry. Historically, that's how this works. It's a boom and bust cycle. Strong demand pushes up prices. Manufacturers increase their capacity to take advantage of these high prices, just like the energy market. And they produce more chips. What do they also do? They invest in new production lines and new foundries. That takes years. And so it goes through this multi-year often 
a boom and bust cycle and you're starting to see this oversupply and things like semi Taiwan Semiconductor reported earnings last week. They raised their full year revenue forecast, but said it's seeing strong demand for chips using products in high performance computers. But they see a broad industry that is dealing with inventory correction that has led customers to cut some orders. So that's what's interesting here. They're cutting orders. And they say, quote, our expectation is for the excess inventory in the semiconductor supply chain to take a few quarters to rebalance a healthier level. That means basically until the beginning of next year. Now we're heading into a break and I'm ready for your calls at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture. I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value. So your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888-99-CHART. Hi, Justin. This is Ray. My strategy is to get in to the stock when it's low and at the dip and then um, sell it when it's high. I know it's not something that uh, people like. I mean, uh, you guys agree with that. But I'm doing okay. I'm doing better than what I was expecting. 75% of the time I'm doing good. So I was wondering, uh, is there anything wrong with this strategy? That's a conversation between me and my wife. She's 
buy and hold type, I'm not. So I was wondering, what would you think about that? Thank you. Well, that's the, if you can accomplish it, then buy, you're saying buy low and sell high. Buy the dip mentality, I guess is, is what you call it. And if you can execute on it consistently, then obviously it's a great strategy. That's the holy grail of, of strategies. And, you know, buying the dip doesn't always work. Why? Because sometimes the stock doesn't come back. So it's ultimately about what type of company you're, you're buying, the strength of the company, and what valuation you're buying it at. For example, you know, if you're looking at like a Peloton of the world, and you bought the dip all the way down, you found support uh, back, this was early last year, early to middle part of last year, it went from 170 to 90, and found support bounced up into the low 100s, and then decided to collapse all the way down, down to $11. So buying when it's down is fine as long as you have uh, confidence in the business that the business isn't being uh, really impaired uh, the cash flows are there the the, the valuations reasonable um, so what you're saying in general makes sense but uh, actual actual consistent execution of it is the hardest part so don't extrapolate extrapolate success over a short period of time that, that you're going to continue to do that over years and years and years okay and uh, oftentimes when you're buying lows, you buy the dip, it goes up, maybe gets it back to uh, the recent high. Oftentimes, if you sell it there, you're just missing out on even more upset because longer term, good companies are going to trend higher and you selling it even after, after it's rallied 20, 30, 40% is actually a bad move because it's probably going to continue to go higher, especially in a good market. So in general, your thought process is correct, but consistent execution is always the name of the game and that's difficult for most. All right, thanks for the call. Now let's touch a little bit on how to approach a bear market and make sure that you're always keeping your eye on the ultimate goal, which is financial freedom. Now for investors that are under 50 years old, typically in the accumulation phase, in a bear market, two things can happen. One is it becomes too nerve wracking and it psychologically breaks them of the habit of investing and the confidence of investing in markets. You see that with uh, many different generations talk about the fourth turning and, and how different experiences shape generations for years and years and years. One of the big reasons why a lot of baby boomers like the stock market is because they made a ton of money in the 90s. That was their prime working age and they were killing it during that time. And they were they were they had a lot of income. They were saving a lot in their 401k. They were saving a lot in their IRA, etc. And things were going well. And that gave them uh, still them a lot of confidence in the markets. Well, the opposite can happen, right? If you come of age, you just started, say you just started to invest over the past few years, you started to follow GameStop and, and, and all the meme stocks, and you, you invested in all these tech stocks and, and quote unquote disruptive stocks, you invested in ARK, and you were doing really well, and then it all kind of came crashing down over the past uh, year or so, and you held on, and, and you, you just buying the story. A lot of people done that. A lot of people are still holding many of those names. That can be a period that can psychologically scar you and if and prevent you from keeping your eye on the ball long term. And 
uh, prevent you from really uh, committing consistent capital to the markets. So that's one area that everyone needs to take a step back. And when you make mistakes in the market, understand number one, it's natural. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody will lose money in positions in the market at some period, of, at some time. Nobody was perfect ever. So don't expect yourself to be perfect. So that's number one. Number two is take losses and learn from them. You're going to learn a lot more from your losses than you are from the gains. And so when you have losses, try to figure out what you did wrong. What did I miss? Did I, did I misread the actual company? Did I misread the sector? Did I misread the economic backdrop? Did I, was I overweight a particular sector that I shouldn't have? Did I ignore another sector that uh, I didn't pay enough attention to? All of these things are learning lessons. And so these are times where most people, you get stressed, but you have to learn the lessons. Use this as that time period. And then also keep an eye on your budget and do your best to raise your contribution limits. When the market is down, that's when your money will go farther in the markets. You can buy more and ultimately long-term that will, that will, uh, that will bear fruit most likely. Okay. And then use this also as a learning lesson to make sure you're always thinking about rebalancing on a consistent basis. And not getting caught up, oh, a sector is doing well, an asset class is doing well, and expect that to just continue to go up indefinitely. Think of the housing market. You saw that in 08, or let's say 02 to 06, and everyone thought housing prices were going to continue to go up and up and up and run away from fundamentals. Same thing in equities, same thing in bonds. Often, there's always time for a particular asset class. There's uh, always time where they, they shine. And a lot of people extrapolate those returns over the last year, two, three years. They think that's what's going to happen over the next two or three years. Typically, that's unlikely. So use that discipline, develop discipline to continue to rebalance, okay? And then if you're closer to retirement, maybe you're in your late 50s, early 60s, and retirement's on the horizon, now might be a good time to start to think about, okay, how do I rebalance my portfolio? I just maybe experienced more volatility than I would like this close to my retirement. The market's starting to bounce. Don't take that for granted. Start to think about selling into this bounce and rebalancing your portfolio so that you have the appropriate risk for your station in life. Most people under 50s, they, they can be relatively aggressive. You have many years to make up any volatility. When you get in your late 50s, early 60s, that starts to change a bit, okay? So focus a little bit more on high quality. Uh, intermediate term bonds, for example, increasing exposure there. And if retirement is really close at hand, that's when you want to think about increasing your cash level and starting to develop a full plan, full financial plan. And... You have to think about things like what will your life be once you do retire? Where are you going to downside? Are you going to move to a different state tax-wise? What other non-portfolio income are you getting? Social security, pension, do you have a rental property, etc.? And then anticipate your withdrawal rate and try to map that out over many, many years and kind of create a glide path, uh, map out big 
expenses. You have to put a new roof on it. You have to buy a new car, etc. and start developing a financial plan. This is a good time to do that, especially when maybe your portfolio is down a little bit and you can be a little more realistic with what your uh, what your assets are today. Whereas you know a year ago, that was probably on an unrealistic valuation for most people's portfolios. Now let's go to Richard in the Bay Area looking at ILPT which is Industrial Logistics Properties Trust. It's a REIT that owns and leases industrial logistic properties here in the U.S., and it is down significantly. Can you tell me why? Uh, thanks, Justin. So they, um, they announced that they're going to cut their dividend. Basically, they're not paying any dividend anymore because they acquired a company for like $4 billion, and their market cap is only $1 billion. They acquired okay. a, an also industrial logistics company in, in back in uh, February, and I think they were not anticipating the, the drastic increase in interest rates, and so they are trying to pay um, some of their commitments uh, to get that deal done. Mm -hmm. And I don't like owning companies that cut their dividends. Um, that's really why, why, why I own that company. Um, but, but they're saying that once they're out of this, um, period and next year they're going to return their dividend to where it was. Uh, I'm mm. wondering if you could look at the stats and see if they can do it or if there is like any um, uh, red flags. Well, has this has this acquisition closed already? Um, honestly, I'm not 100 percent sure. I okay. think yes, um, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I'd have to look uh, a little bit deeper at this. But on the surface, it, it's a very leveraged company. You're talking about a market cap currently of about $630 million and an enterprise value of 5.3. So they have about 4.7 net debt uh, on their balance sheet, which is a lot of debt considering that their, their revenue is only about $71 million per quarter. Uh, now that looks to be up, so maybe the acquisition did recently close, but that's that's my worry here, is, and that's why they've cut their dividend. They're trying to deleverage their balance sheet, and I'd have to look at their acquisition. How poor was it? Sounds like it was uh, made at the at a bad time, at a too high of a valuation, and they've overlevered themselves. And you go into an economic slowdown, industrial properties, that certainly uh, is, is cyclical. Even warehouses uh, are even more cyclical now that less goods are being uh, utilized uh, or being, are being purchased, excuse me. And that's the issue here. Now they have rental revenue in Hawaii uh, and, and mainland. So uh, Hawaii is um, you know, a, a unique place, so I like that. But once again, I don't like the leveraged nature of their business. And so you if you if you dig deep and you look at their properties, look at their cash flow projections and you can start to project out how long it's going to take them to right size their balance sheet, maybe get down to one and a half, two billion dollars in debt. I think that would be a level where maybe they can start to reinstitute the dividend. Their their balance sheet isn't quite as levered. Their cost of capital isn't just eating up all of the all of their their, their cash flows, etc then you can start to think about getting a, a dividend again. So this is would be a very long-term play that, hey, uh, I'm going to buy it now because prices are depressed, because they, they cut their dividend, but I have confidence that 
they'll, they'll dig themselves out of this because of the quality of their properties. That's one thesis that you're going to have to see if it holds water. Otherwise, this is a name that probably will go bankrupt because of this if they cannot do that. And then it might look cheap at $9, but guess what? A bankrupt company typically sells for zero. So $9 is very expensive for a bankrupt company. So I, you really have to dig in the details here. And obviously I can't do that. I just have kind of surface level, level statistics, uh, but that's the way I would approach this particular company. Thanks for the call, Richard. Now we've got another live caller, Craig from Seattle, looking at E, which is any spa ADS, which is a Italian, looks like a, an oil company. There we go. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Yep. I uh, own a small portion of it. Okay. What do you what do you like about it? You know, I just I picked it up off Zach's as one of their strong buys, and I was uh, just looking to get more into you know energy sector, and and uh, so I got a small position in it when it was down, and wanted to get your take on it. Okay. <sighs> Definitely down and struggling compared to most of the energy space. Now the big question here is where are their where's their revenue coming from is it just in italy that'd be my main question let's see it produces 0.8 million barrels of liquids and 4.7 billion cubic feet of natural gas per day uh, italian government owned, government owns 30 percent of the company and it started to invest in renewables low carbon business as a separate entity Interesting. Okay. So this is not a name that I would be excited about getting into. Uh, a lot of this has to do with their in ESG initiatives uh, that looks like they're implementing, uh, which is certainly more expensive, less profitable than the oil business. It doesn't look like their right. business is well diversified around the world or in revenue. And therefore, part of this probably has to do with the weak euro, if a lot of the revenue is coming over uh, in, in euros. So that's something uh, to consider. Um, so yeah, just not an exciting name, to be honest with you. Uh, I'd rather own a company okay. that isn't owned by uh, the Italian government that's obviously going to put some types of pressure on how it deploys its capital. I'd rather be putting money into companies that are actually investing in R&D in new, new production. Because those are the companies that are going to do very, very well. There's going to be a lot of companies, think of Exxon, because of ESG pressures, because of government pressures, they're going to drill less. They're going to put less money into traditional oil and gas production. And those companies are going to struggle. Think of the BPs of the world. Think of what BP has been uh, been doing lately. So they're struggling as well. So I'm going to pass on E. I want a more globally diversified, less reliant on just European revenue um, and one that isn't 30% owned by a European state that obviously is going to have their own agenda. Thanks for the call. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here each and every weekday, which is to help you reach your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So, if you're going to call, you want to do it right now at 888 chart. You are listening to Invest Talk. We've seen the markets go up, then down, sideways, and around. It's called volatility. 
And if you're a serious investor, you'll have finance and investment questions for Justin Klein. He's here now taking your calls live. Invest Talk, 888 99 Chart. Hi, Steve Justin. This is Josh from California. I have a question regarding Equinox EQIX. Should I look into buying it now, or when would be a more appropriate time to pick this up? If this is just for my Roth IRA, leave it in there and drip it. Thank you guys. Look forward to the reply. Bye. All right, looking at EQIX Equinix, which is a provider of basically they're a REIT. Uh, actually, no, they're not a REIT anymore. Oh, are they a REIT? Let me see this. Once it says they're a REIT, is it a REIT? Yes, it is a REIT. That was odd. One description didn't say it was a REIT, but it is a REIT and it's basically a server farm REIT. They build server farms and they rent space out to companies to put their cloud on their uh, their server farm, basically. And they uh, operate 240 data, data centers in 66 markets worldwide. They own a little bit more than half of them. The others they, they lease and then they, they do their thing with them. And they have over 10,000 customers, including 2,000 different networks that have different verticals from cloud and IT services, content providers, network and mobile services, financial services, and enterprise. So very well diversified. So 70% of the revenue comes from renting space to tenants and related services around that. 15% comes from connecting customers with each other. So in the IT space, very good, consistent business like the company has come down here 26% from its 52 week high yields about 2%. So not a high dividend yield, but certainly a, a good company with consistent uh, growth earned $14 or funds from operation in 2015 was $14 per share. Now expected next year to be $31 and 88 cents. Now those earnings expectations or funds from operation expectations are coming down, but they're coming uh, down from, from growth, which is which is good, especially in this market. So well, I would say after this recent pullback, it's about fairly valued. I think it was overvalued a year ago, and now it's about fairly valued. Look at uh, things like enterprise valued EBITDA, its long-term average is right around 25, where is it trading right now? 25.92. So it's not cheap, it's not expensive, it's one of the better I think REITs out there, I like this space within the REIT sector. A lot of people think of REITs and they think of um, retail REITs, they think of office uh, companies that own office centers and office buildings, uh, industrial parks, et cetera. But this is a unique niche that has good long-term secular tailwinds as we use cloud services more and more and more. I don't think that's going away. I think that's only going to expand into more and more things in our lives. And uh, Equinix is one that services those type of clients. And so uh, we like this space and Equinix is definitely one of the better players. Not cheap, not expensive, but a good company. Thanks for the call. Now, lastly, let's get into the rules that are coming through Congress in regards to stable coins. And we're moving closer to some sort of a bipartisan bill that would regulate stable coins as an effort to safeguard the cryptocurrency market. Now, this group of lawmakers worried that the current laws don't provide enough uh, standards, comprehensive standards for this asset class. And 
uh, poses a potential risk to financial stability if there is some sort of run on the bank, like you saw with uh, Terra USD. Uh, you also have Tether, which is the largest stable coin. It briefly lost its peg when Terra uh, kind of went went down. And the reason is, is because there's no real understanding of the assets that are backing these quote unquote stable coins. And there's no clear jurisdiction of, you know, who is going to regulate these things. And so Congress needs to move to create kind of this overarching rule set around crypto and especially these stable coins, because a lot of people think that this is stable. Hence the word that a dollar is a dollar. It's kind of like a money market. And money markets have rules. And twice over the past 12 years, the Fed has had to step into the money market and kind of save the money market. Why? Because in a leveraged system, you need somebody to come in there and infuse capital. And I'm, I'm afraid that within the crypto market, that we're going to eventually just collapse down into base money because there has to be a consistent amount of capital flowing into the space. And when suddenly prices reverse, oftentimes that can feed on itself. And I think that's the worry with stable coins as well. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. And we've officially hit over 34.5 million and growing thanks to you. Get yours anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and be sure to rate and review on iTunes. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.